so long I have had such an unrest inside me, and it's getting real bad. I'm sleeping at night, and my heart beats so loud that I wake all dizzy and light with a dream. Such a thumping inside me that I think I'll go mad. Lucy, your debut album is called Carpenter's Phil. It could only be American. True enough. <laughs> it, it sounds like home. It was home. Tell us why the title and why now for this album. Carpenter's Phil is my hometown. My parents moved out there in the mid-50s with my siblings. I was born later in the 60s. And this is about going home. The concept for this album basically came from my searching after my dad died in 2010. And you stop and you think, who am I? What am I doing now? I mean, I know it's cliche, but what is it all about? And what have I been running around doing for the last 20 years of my career? And why am I still doing what I think everyone else wants me to do? Because that's what you're supposed to do for an opera career. And so if I went home, I thought about the things that I loved most, the things that make me happy, and these are the composers I found. And so this is a special niche project for me to say how my heart beats. Mm. What factors determined your choices? I mean, this was your project reflecting your artistic creed. Mm. No one was going to tell you what to sing. (laughs) Uh, So how did you narrow down the choices? Because I know you've got a huge repertoire and Mm. a huge area of interest as a singer. So who and what had to be there? Well, being a Tanglewood girl, I had to have Bernstein. And Lenny's music has always been part of my life. And so I went back to Dream With Me, which I sang when his letters and music and manuscript went to the Library of Congress after he died. And I love that piece, Dream With Me. There's a plea for all of you out there. Mm-hmm. Greeting came from Arias and Barcarolles, and that's one of the first song cycles I sang with Stephen Blyer and Michael Barrett in the New York Festival of Song. And it's about rebirth, and it's about parents, and it's about loving, and it's a cycle of life. And if Carpentersville, the CD, the album, is about anything, it's about the cycle of life, the love of my parents and home and me and moving forward. And so that had to be there. And because I'm a square peg in a round hole... Had to have a hundred easy ways to, to well, you know, because it's you know it's that, part of the music theater tradition of my that, bones as well as absolutely. the world today. Now the first way to lose a man, you've met a charming fellow and you're out for a spin. The motor fails and he just wears a helpless grin. Don't bat your eyes and say, what a romantic spot we're in. Just leap out, crow under the car, say it's the gasket, and fix it in two seconds flat with a bobby pin. That's a good way to lose a man. Now, one of the huge influences on Bernstein was Mark Blitzstein, a figure of enormous integrity and social Mm. conscience. What was it about him that you felt had to be represented? I think it's the other side of my brain and heart, I suppose, truly, that speaks to my sense of social justice. It speaks to my literary and play theatre side of my brain. 
because there's this wonderful mix of this Lillian Hellman, speaking of Regina. So Blitzstein came to me through Regina, and it was Bertie who first caught my eye, because I love the tristesse and the angst of all of that. And then I saw the City Opera production in the early 90s that Rosalind Elias directed, and I thought, okay, you know, I'd sung Bertie's aria, but now I really get it. And then Wish It So came into my view, and I just thought, this longing, mm-hmm. this the way this man just mm-hmm. knows... Mm-hmm. It's not just simple dreams, but that down to your toes, what do I want? Yeah, expressing the inexpressible in a way. And, uh, exactly. I mean, we actually heard a little bit of the introduction at the beginning of this podcast, but then it goes into this most extraordinary tune. For I wish it so. sing complex contemporary repertoire Mm. but as you say you sing the show tunes too and is it a shift in style more than a shift in technique that enables you to do so I mean is it about the text that enables you to make that different we used to have this argument in grad school what's more important making the beautiful sound or the text and I have never been in the Mia Voce, Mia Voce camp. Maybe it's because I don't have a beautiful voice, but the fact is it's one of these things where I believe in the text. And I believe you have to have a story and the voice rides on that story and each complements each other. And I have to have the text. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where all form of vocal style and technique comes from. It's how the composer uses the text with his or her music to tell the story, mm. whatever that happens to be. Mm. So yes, it's a change in style, most definitely, and you have to slot into it. And if you don't have the chops to do that composer's style, then have enough dignity to say, I don't honor you well enough, and step aside. Mm. There is some musical theater that demands a bigger belt, um, a whole different approach that my years and years of classical training, I probably could do, but it would take me a while to come back again for the 75% of my other repertoire to do. And so I leave it to those who sing it well, just like I leave Rossini and all that sort of twiddly, melismatic stuff to those who know how to impart the story on the twiddles. I'll twiddle in Handel, I'll twiddle in Mozart, but when it comes to that sort of bel canto-y stuff, mm. I'll leave it to everyone else yeah. because I, I can't do it as well. What is your process of preparation? Colored pencils. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot exist without my colored pencils. I love to analyze and to look at it and red for structure, blue for phrasing, green for orchestral, you know, how do I work with the orchestra? Do I taper? Do I mirror? Am I in unison? And depending on how I feel about the character after I've read the text over and over and over and over and over again, is that going to be an orange person? You know, Margaret Mm -hmm. in Light in the Piazza is orange, Erica and 
in Vanessa's purple. You have to find the right underlying color. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I'm not synesthetic in any way, shape, or form, but color helps me look at it, and then I can see things in blocks, and then I can map it out, and then I can control it, and then I'm happy. <laughs> you, you mentioned control. I believe you, I believe you. Um, there were bound to be strong women mm. here in this project, too, in this collection. Yes. Uh, you've got a couple of very strong women, and they're both numbers I love, but I think Amanda McBroom's lyric for the kite song is just really uplifting. I had the great gift in my life to meet her yonks ago when I was in grad school. And she's always been this little bird in the back of my brain saying, there's something else, there's something else, there's something else. And I used to see her in the Russian tea room in New York when I was living there. I used to go every New Year's Eve she was singing. And I'd be there like the little fan with roses in my hand just going, I still love you, Amanda. I really do. I love everything you do. The kite, it's like, well, it is the child inside of us all like how I felt trying to calm my dad on his deathbed. You know, we need someone there to hold your hand. And when there's someone in your life to say, please make me that kite, Mm -hmm. take me away from all this. And that's what I love about Kevin Amos's arrangement. He takes the cello and Gabby, who played on the recording, it's like, my sound melds with her sound. And as she has her solo, she lifts us up out of the mire, the monk, the, the Jungian agita of sitting in and wallowing. And I thank Amanda and Michelle Brumann's music to, to have it on the CD. When the night is wearing its darkest face And the world is like a stone And the people on the dusty street Make me feel I'm all alone then I run to the one I love And you throw your arms out wide And I love you so my heart might break For you can make me a kite Make me a kite Give me rainbow wings Make me a kite With a thousand miles of silken strings Let me fly to the top of the sky And then let me come down safe again Tell us about the very creative arrangements for this album. You mentioned Kevin Amos and the kite arrangement, but every track has its own individual sound, mm. which is something I love. You thought long and hard about I did. This. I wanted a sense of community and a sense of ensemble in these arrangements. And it grew from what I call the Holy Trinity, which is me, Kevin, and Gabby. So piano, cello, and voice. And from there, because I wanted very specific pieces on the recording, Kevin was bright enough to say, well, if we have those instruments we need for the Stuart Wallace, Hopper's wife, then what if we use those forces to make the dinghy song? And then we can expand from there for the Blitzstein Regina, and then we can come back and from that whoosh and lushness, we'll take the cream of that side, and which becomes Martha and everything else for the string section. So it was this sense of starting from the heart of the matter, another cue for Amanda McBroom song, (laughs) um, which is the Holy Trinity, and then just melding and morphing. And so 
each composer had their song, but using the forces and the community we built together. Yes, there was a sense of community. I was at one of the sessions mm. and, uh, you know, this this little group of people all melding in an interesting way. And eating birthday something. cake and eating cake and drinking tea and well, laughing. You're a good and hostess, Lucy. Well, it's important. And that's one of the principles I said from the very beginning, is I didn't want this to be headphones and booths and separation. I couldn't hold to the ethos of having this be a personal project about a very personal story and have us all separated by sound barriers and me putting my voice to, you know, music plus one. I don't care if my voice wasn't that perfect on that take, but if the clarinet and I were together because we made an ensemble, then that's what's optimal. Not about the perfection of something, but the fact of us making music together in that moment and then having the guts to say, this is what's real. Let me fly to the top of the sky and then let me come down safe again. One of the really significant voices in musical theatre right now is Adam Gettle, grandson of the great Richard Rogers, my idol. Um, he's written two produced musicals today, both of them masterpieces, Floyd Collins and The Light in the Piazza. You played Margaret in the British premiere, the Leicester Curve um, in Light in the Piazza. It's a scandal that it hasn't been seen in the West End, but that's another story. It is one of the great musical theatre scores of recent years. And I know you had to include it here, mm-hmm. but Adam gave you an additional gift, didn't he? Because yes. there's something here that isn't available anywhere else. No, it's not. And I, I sometimes have to still pinch myself. I can go back to those final rehearsals while Adam, when Adam came up to Leicester. And I remember showing off, you know, um, in that opening scene. And Margaret has uh, an optional high A at the end. And I thought, well... Here we go. Composers in town. Let's see if we can pull up our socks. And and the minute I let the high A rip at the end, we are here. And uh, and his eyes went bing straight over to me. And and that's when I thought, well, here we go. And he said, well, you know, there are lots of things that I wrote for this piece that got cut because you know everyone edits and changes and makes it optimal. But there are more through composed song recits for the beauty is reprised for for Margaret and uh, just let me know if you ever would like to see them or or, or have them and I thought yeah right yeah you know people make promises and Mm -hmm. and then I'm a haunt and so I went well you know Adam may I please and without hesitating he said yes of course and of course we had to put together what we know as beauty is reprise and the extra accompagnato recit and this is as if she's gone to the priest to say I've got a problem which originally was earlier in Act 1 instead of as it is now in Act 2. And so there's this whole section, we used to call it the Chimera, and all our emails would be headed, Chimera, what the hell are we going to do? You know, how are we going to put this together? And, and making sure the keys were right and the colors were right. And Adam said, it's yours, you take it. And I said, well, Julian Kelly will arrange, because he was you know, our music director in, in Leicester. He knows your voice. He's so smart. He will honor you so well. And he just said, go for it. 
He never asked to double check things. We came in for one rehearsal, which you were at, <laughs> and I have this gift from yes. this genius. And all I can keep saying is, thank you. go for total immersion I know in any role you play there was another role in a, a piece written by Michael Corrie and Stuart Wallace called uh, Hopper's Wife which was a bizarre idea for brilliant b- brilliantly bizarre yes um, I mean in a nutshell what was the idea in, in a nutshell it's an argument of high art versus low art which I suppose in that sort of black and white thinking is where we go back to our discussions of musical theater versus opera and people's prejudices on all sides. And Hopper's wife takes the idea of Edward Hopper, though we never say, we never have first names for the Hoppers. It's just Mrs. Hopper, Hopper, and Ava. Ava being based on Ava Gardner, though never said. And Hop's nudes and all his paintings and Mrs. Hopper being his inspiration, but what if Ava Gardner came in and told another, or Ava came in and told another story interest Mrs. Hopper, Hop's misogyny comes out and it morphs and changes as these human stories are told and Mrs. Hopper goes back to Hollywood with Ava and becomes Hedda Hopper. And of course when Hopper dies, his nudes are going to the Whitney. And she goes, they're my nudes, they can't be seen. You know, I've been this moral fighter for days and years and and, and for everything and I, I can't let my breasts be seen. And of course Ava has gone to the bottom of the Hollywood mire and comes back for that first nude painting she did when she was still untainted. And Mrs. Hopper goes, no way. And they have this fight in this wonderful film noir way. You know, Mrs. Hopper gets out a gun and goes, poof, and Ava hits the bricks. And Mrs. Hopper sings this, here's to the movies, you know, and sings, you know, and ends up setting fire to all his nudes that she doesn't want to be seen and then ends up as the Columbia Pictures woman holding a torch with her handbag. <laughs> you know, so Ava was the last part to be cast and uh, Michael Barrett, who was conducting, whom I knew from New York Festival of Song, they had asked so many people to do it. And the one hang-up all the other girls had was about getting their kid off. And I thought, yeah, it's kind of scary. You know, getting your tits out and, and, and just dropping it all. You know, it is. I mean, it was, there was no bikini. There was no nothing. It was full frontal nudity. 1940s, so I didn't do any bikini waxing. You let your privates be your privates. And, and of course, Christopher Alden, who was directing, was like, too much pubic hair! <laughs> but you just think, total immersion. 40s girls didn't, you know, tidy it up. But that's what held them back. And I thought... Isn't that interesting? High art versus low art are the warring gorgons of this piece. And yet there were so many singers who couldn't get over the shame of saying I have a beautiful body in that Mm. moment of innocence of what Ava's looking for in that moment. And I just had to say yes.
is your artistic creed, Lucy, and where do you want to be going in the next 20 years? A creed? It's a very good question. The two words that always pop to my mind, and, and I try my best, though I'm human and sometimes fail, the two words that always come to mind are honesty and integrity. If you can do your absolute best to be as honest to yourself, which is the biggest challenge. You can move forward and just try something new. And this is what this is about. It's a new little foray. I thought about this long and hard. You know, what do I want to do next? And what I want to do next is whatever twinkle is in the eye of Jake Heggie, Ricky Gordon, Oliver Nesson, George Benjamin, any of those guys that are out there, Mark Turnage, and all the other young composers, whoever you are, hello, call me, that whatever you want to create, I want to be one of those people who help you birth it into this world. Mm. In whatever capacity, if it means I pick up a phone, if it means I bring cakes to the rehearsal, if it means I'm singing it and helping you edit, if it helps you in any way, I want to be a part of that process. an excuse to sing Bach, um, Lucy, but yours was Stephen Barber, Bach for the Streets. He made this amazing arrangement of mm. Erbama Dich from St Matthew Passion. It's like we've never heard it before, and yet it seems so right. It seems so of the people. Stephen Barber and I go way back. Met him in grad school. I premiered a piece of his called Nickelodeon, and we're talking weird and out there and Sylvia Plath poetry, you name it. And then I did a performance piece of it in New York in the village wrapped in bubble wrap. I mean, just, <laughs> I mean, it was wonderful. And Stephen, I said to him, I really want to do this, but I have to do it in my own way. I'm not an early music specialist. And there is this mourning after both your parents are gone and you have this sense of who am I. And Abamadi, it's also an honoring of my husband too and all of the Matthew Passions that he's ever done. And when you're mourning, there's this sense of loneliness. And there's nothing more lonely than that street musician. And the colors I wanted to use were the soprano sax, the cello. And I thought there's nothing better than the a free bass accordion. And I thought, 
that's it. It just hangs in that, oh my gosh, please have mercy on me. Please make this easier. Please forgive me for all that I am as a human being and allow me, allow me. And again, because I'm that theater beast, I had to add another layer as well, which is the fact that there's nothing lonelier and yet more wonderful in cleansing. And maybe it's my Cecil B. DeMille, Ben-Hur crucifixion scene in my head, but I added rain to the track. There's that sense of it raining and whatever referential pictures you want to have in your head, I don't mind, you take them and run with them. But that sense of rain and coming in on this scene of us singing this, washing and cleansing us of any sort of unhappiness or fear that allows us to take that next step forward.